Hello, hello, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I'm here for round two. Ah, not really that combative, but uh, I'm here with Michael Cross, who is an international expert on um, teaching finance and psychopathy, who's got his second novel. Uh, is it out yet? Is it about to come out? Imminent? No, uh, the second one is out. The third one should be out sometime before Christmas. Now, of course, the obvious question for me, at least, is if you are writing convincingly from the first-person um, perspective of a psychopath, where would you rate yourself on the continuum of, you know, uh, Buddhist to psychopath? I don't know what, what's on the other <laughs> side of, of the psychopathy spectrum, but where would you rate yourself if you had to? Well, just in defense there, <laughs> I had a... a uh, one, I was in a conversation with two people that had read the book. Uh, one of them, their mother, is a psychologist who also read the book, and she was just like, okay, he's got to be a psychopath if he writes for this closely to how they really think. Uh, the other person was a nurse and said, yeah, but it's written from the perspective of a female, and he's not a female. So therefore, you know, a person can – a person can be creative and not be that particular uh, individual. So, yeah, I mean, Dostoevsky didn't have to go and murder everything to have Raskolnikov kill someone in crime and punishment. That's not, you know, I don't think that uh, uh, what Stephen King doesn't have to reincarnate children, children's dolls who return to your dreams as axe murderers or anything. <laughs> there is the aspect of imagination, but a convincing portrayal yeah. of character means a deep understanding of the driver. Yeah, and to a certain degree, you have to – well, I guess you'd have to have a cert, uh, certain level of empathy in order to get into the mind of a psychopath. And well, to to do that, that means you would have one of the characteristics that does not fit psychopathy, and that's um, – well, a deeper empathy. I mean I guess psychopaths have a certain level of empathy, but it's very minimal. Well, they have the empathy. I would assume that is predatory. In that the lion wishes to know which way the deer or the gazelle is going to jump. They have to anticipate the moves. Uh, as to somebody in a sword fight or a boxing match, they have to anticipate. They study their opponent. They have to really get inside the opponent's head. But not because they want to make them feel better about their difficult childhoods, but because they want to win whatever battle uh, is, is anticipated. Oh, absolutely. And on top of that, in the, in the, uh, in the case of if you read up on, on – certain serial killers and so forth, you find that they were very strongly um, – they loved their family but no one else. Uh, and then using that analogy of the lion, well, you can go back a little further and deal with uh, crocodiles and alligators. You don't want to mess with their young. You know, if they have a bunch of young around them, they do have a maternal instinct, which I guess you could say, well, that seems to sound all warm and cuddly, but it's in reality not so warm and cuddly if you're if you in some way threaten that person or no, it's uh, it's animal. your basic DNA propagating bond, right? I mean, it's not exactly what we would refer to as Hallmark card elevated roses love. It is, you know, don't don't mess with the investment I put into my offspring or my blood clan or something like that. It's a Hatfield and McCoy loyalty. Uh, it is not uh, <laughs> what we would call, you know, um, elevated uh, ego based love. Now, listen, I, I wanted to ask you a question before we uh, we want to talk a little bit about social control. I'm going to assume that the listeners or watchers of the show have some um, familiarity with psychopathy. Um, the 1%, right? So I've been reading some of Robert Hare's stuff recently um, and uh, a great book, The, the Narcissist, uh, sorry, the, the Sociopath Next Door, which is uh, estimates, um, you know, one in, one in 25, right? 4% of the population are sociopaths. Some people put the number of, of psychopaths at, uh, at 1% and so on. Now, 
I personally, you know, with no expertise in the field, uh, but I, I would rate those numbers higher because I particularly come from uh, a philosophical position where the initiation of force is immoral. And there are so many people who are comfortable with the initiation of force in society, either through the compulsion of taxation or people who cheer war, I would view as pretty sociopathic fundamentally. Um, you know, I mean, even if, it, if it's a just war, we view it with, I think, regret. Uh, you know, like uh, uh, if you have to have a limb cut off because you have gangrene, you don't want people cheering the surgeon uh, unless they really don't like you. You want them to, you know, it's a regrettable necessity. So that's my perspective. I think it's quite a lot higher than what shows up uh, in the sort of clinical estimates because they assume that society is healthy, you know, and that's why the majority of society yeah. is not mentally ill, uh, which of course they were saying the same thing 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Well, society is healthy. We just have a few deviants. Whereas, of course, if you take someone from the ancient world with their belief in, in slavery, with their belief in racial dominance, with their belief in the inferiority of women and the degree to which they were unbelievably harsh in their raising of their children, uh, and you move them into the contemporary society, they would go almost straight to a psychiatric ward. So every society says, well, we're pretty normal. We got some outliers, you see, but we're, you know, the majority of us are pretty normal. Again, I don't want to sort of put words in your mouth, but but do you agree with the sort of estimate of 4% uh, approximately for sociopaths, 1% for psychopaths? Uh, do you think that that is true relative to society or relative to some sort of higher moral standard that we're hopefully marching towards? I, well, I'd put it this way. First of all, I love your analogy of if you have gangrene and having to remove an arm or a leg or something because I was reading that there there were, I can't remember who it was. They they put a list of the ten most psychopathic uh, occupations where psychopaths seem to be drawn to, and then the ten least. And the interesting thing was wait, you're not going to say internet podcast host, are you? I just uh, wonder if we're going to lead into oh, that. I'm no, just no, kidding. No, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go on. No, that wasn't there. What, what the interesting thing was was uh, emergency room surgeons were yeah. within that ten, you know, most psychopathic. But general care physicians were in the 10 least psychopathic. Right. So um, I guess in, in, some, in some sort of way, and, I, and we'll get into that later, but there are certain advantages if you go into a surgeon and you're not really worried if they're all warm and cuddly. Uh, if they're going you want a cold hearted sure guy live. with a you, you want a cold hearted guy with a steady hand. You don't want like I'd have to take a sliver out of my daughter's foot and my hand was mm -hmm. shaking. I'm like, oh, it's gonna hurt so much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You want somebody I I don't want a lot of empathy if somebody has to do an emergency tracheotomy on me. I want them to be a cold ass robot who's gonna go in there like a deli slicer and do what he needs to do. So Yeah, now now I would I would put it this way. I, I think that there I think it seems to be somewhat continuum. I had a uh, I have a radio program I do an hour each week and I interviewed a woman who was a lawyer well she was a law professor and a psychopath uh, and she wrote a book about what it's like to see through the eyes you know life through the eyes of a psychopath and her claim was that no matter what society you go to it seems to fit that there's about like you said about a one about 1% of the female population and around 3%-ish of the male population uh, fits the criteria for uh, psychopathy. But it, it, it doesn't change. It, it seems to be consistent throughout. And of course, maybe you know, she said that maybe if you have too many, if that figure goes up, then society doesn't work. If it goes lower than that, 
in some areas, it doesn't work if you have less. I mean, I guess you could say that the reason why we might live in you know countries like Canada and the United States is because there was some pretty adventurous, maybe to a larger degree, psychopathic people who were saying, you know, I, I just don't want anything to do with Europe. I'm going to go over and just conquer the wilderness. Well, that can mean that there were more there, – there's an advantage in some ways, even though it sounds terrible. There's an advantage to having your pioneers, you know, you, well, the early people that went out and really tamed things and had to do battles and stuff like that. Well, sorry, just to add to that too, I mean you, you – they would have to have – Less than I would argue, they would have to have less than average bonds with their family of origin, because they've. I mean, this isn't like go and come back. I mean, you, you six week journey to the new world. I mean, you're likely never going to come back. So they have to walk away from their childhood friends, from their mother, from their father, from the you know maybe their siblings. So they have to have. I, I would argue a reduced uh, sense of familial obligation, uh, and and also they must uh, have an incredible sensitivity towards oppression which um, uh, I would assume people who are free of conscience are also pretty sensitive to being repressed, which is why they try to climb to the top of whatever social hierarchy they're in. So uh, again, you know, diagnosing historically at a distance is always kind of tricky, but I certainly could see some traits fitting the bill. Yeah, I think there is a, there's actually a, um, there's actually a, I was watching some documentary, I think it was on History Channel, something where there is actually such thing as psychohistory. Oh, yeah. It sounds terrible. As I was like, you, no, no, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan. Feels, yeah, <laughs> you know, you look at people like uh, Nero or Rasputin or, or any of these kinds of individuals and try to figure out were they psychopaths and how did that affect the way that they functioned um, within and over society, and and again going back to that idea it, it, that maybe there's an evolutionary psychology component. That everything that we look at and say, you know, from our contemporary eyes, we look at people who, you know, that stereotypical hippie that's like, wow, man, I'm looking up in the sky and I can feel the spirit coming through me. Um, more likely than not, that person is what we call schizotypal, mm. not schizophrenic, but schizotypal. Now, those kinds of people, of course, are very creative. We see those people really overrepresented in the arts. Uh, be, and there's nothing, you know. We don't want to get rid of that. We don't want to do some sort of genetic engineering and say, okay, we're going to make sure. Oh, this this embryo has the makings of a schizotypal child, so let's abort it. Uh, this child here has this, the makings of a psychopath. Let's abort. It. Well, pretty soon we would just have a, a homogenized culture that might not have those variations that you could argue we need. On the other hand, though, when it comes to psychopathy, it seems that maybe. You need to have checks and balances. You know, you just I mean, we look through history, we see this really powerful king that expanded his empire at the cost, of course, of the people that were in that those areas originally. Um, and that's who we were admire in history. But we don't want a society where everyone feels that way, or else, you know, everyone's carrying guns in the streets and shooting each other and and it would just be total chaos. So Maybe well, sorry, I would also argue that um, I would also argue that uh, that the demand for psychopathy within society has been diminishing to some degree over time. I mean, so 
when you had a slave-based society, the degree uh, of non-empathy you had to have for your slaves would be endemic throughout society. And in fact, if you if you did empathize with the slaves, you had a pretty horrible time in that society because everywhere you look would just be human wretchedness uh, and so on. So uh, to be, and of course, uh, the psychohistorians uh, are very keen on pointing out how brutal childhood was uh, for most people in the past. Uh, and most parents were just, you know, they can't find anyone before the 18th or 19th century who wouldn't immediately be thrown in jail for child abuse in the modern world. And so, y- y- yes, in the past, when you, you know, subjugated women, subjugated slaves, when all expansions of territory came at the rape, slaughter and murder of, you know, innocence uh, around you. Uh, and even, of course, the settling of North America and South America involved, you know, the death of tens of millions of indigent population uh, members. And so we hope that over time, uh, our need for for psychopathy in society to even survive will diminish. You know, certainly I think that uh, it's diminished since at least uh, over the past couple of hundred years since the end of slavery, uh, it has diminished. Uh, and and instead of being sort of complete racial dominance, probably just retreated into garden variety of racism. Uh, so I hope, you know, in the future, could we end up with a society where this stuff would be almost non-required? Yeah, I think that would be great. I mean, uh, you know, we can only hope, I guess. Well, the, the thing is, though, that, oh, that, how would you put it there? We would hope that that would be the case, you know, some sort of vestigial uh, organ type thing, you know, where we don't really need this anymore. And eventually, in theory, it just kind of fades away. Like some people have said, the appendix will eventually just disappear in human beings. Or hair, um, you know, for the least advanced among us, of course, they <laughs> yeah. still have hair. For the most advanced among us, of course, we will look like robots from the future. But go ahead. Yeah, if we go into transhumanism, the 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 interesting thing is though that while you might think that a psychopath would be you know not have those familiar bonds that you've talked about you know they might not be as likely to give birth to children um on the other hand you could have a situation in which um that well because of their particularly promiscuous lifestyle most of them uh you might actually wind up with more children born that way in fact i was Oh, I was look, reading an article that was dealing with the idea of uh, of all things sperm donation, and this, I'm I'm not going to you know disparage people who are going wait a minute you know my mother had a donor or something like that, but the thing that uh, this doctor brought out is when he was in college, uh, some of his friends were um, were doing donations in order to earn money. This was like during the 1980s. And they urged him to do it too, and he said he couldn't do that because he felt like uh, he wouldn't want to have children that were out there that he never knew. Hmm. And he said some of his friends were kind of like, "Well, I don't care what you know what they do with this. I don't care about these children." And this doctor was actually saying that maybe there should be a review of laws in the present day because he was fearing that there could be a predisposition towards. Um, Mm. At worst, narcissism, or, or well, at best, narcissism, and at worst, psychopathy, because you know the guy is like, okay, well, I don't really care. He fathers twenty-five children. You know, if you go by the, I think it's Denmark where they allow that. There was some article about some guy had a genetic defect they caught, but um, so so it could go up or down, or it could be that if we, the more we go into like this predatory capitalism or something that we see nowadays, you could actually see that these people rise to the top. They make more money. They have more kids because they have more opportunity to have kids. Who knows? Um, there have been some that have speculated that this could actually increase in the future because of that. The, the warm, caring person 
is you know if you have economic downturns is not going to make as much money and of course if you look at it again from evolutionary psychology the if it's a man a man who is really driven and he's just you know bringing in the money he's going to be more likely to get more mates overall i mean there's even you know lots of research de- dealing with the idea that the more money a male makes the more sexual partners over the lifetime he will have I mean, you know, how many how many partners would Bill Clinton have had if he'd have just been working at Walmart? You know, I mean, probably more than the average Walmart person, but not as much as maybe if you're a powerful individual. Hypogamy, I suppose, right? The woman's desire to hook into a more powerful male to provide resources for her offspring, always looking to trade out biologically. Do you find or in your research, have you found any variation on the prevalence of psychopathy by race? Um, well, from what I've what I've read, there is there is no difference. The only the only thing that I have seen that seems to show a difference between psychopathy between groups, and it may just be what we perceive socially, is um, there seems to be more in Canada and, and America than there is in Britain and Scotland. There's mm. been some studies on that, but that could just be the way it's measured. Uh, yeah, yeah. Or it could go back to what I was talking about—the pioneer spirit. You know, the the people that were like, "Well, I don't want to leave family and my comfortable surroundings, so forth, and take all these risks." They may have stayed home. Could explain right. Scandinavia today. You know, Scandinavia is one of the most kind of you know you, you find uh, very much a feminist culture, uh, somewhat of a passive culture when it comes to war and things like that. Um, you could argue maybe you know first wave of really hardcore people were the Vikings and they went off and colonized Britain and France and who knows where, and then the second wave was of course the the um, you know the pioneer wave back in the early 1830s where many Scandinavians left Norway, Denmark, and Sweden and Finland and and went off you know into the wilderness in the United States, so that could explain it there, but. It's no way you could really measure that. Ultimately, it's just theoretical. So I don't think there's, I don't think there's any difference uh, racially uh, if we assume that all races have the same variations and so forth. Okay, just curious about that. Now, of course, the 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 stereotype of psychopathy is you know the the axe wielding, leather face murderer in the woods kind of thing, uh, and I find um, like all stereotypes, it's actually probably put out by psychopaths in order to camouflage themselves, you know, look for the guy with the pig skin on his face and don't worry about the guy in the suit at the podium, right? Uh, I think that uh, generally the more extreme the stereotype is put out, the more it camouflages, the more common variation. And one of the places I think that uh, sociopathy in particular works very well is in the realm of language, uh, in, in the degree to which um, uh, you can frame somebody else's experience and, and their emotional reactions and their entire worldview according to uh, to language. And of course, that gets us into the realm of something that's of, both of, of interest to both of us, which is uh, media control. Uh, do you think that uh, yes. elements of sociopathy can show up in language manipulation for the sake of resources? To give me a tiny example is, you know, uh, be patriotic to your country, uh, which means fundamentally pay your taxes. You know, like there's a very material component uh, to to these kinds of allegiances, uh, all the way down to be paid, you know, be be uh, be loyal to your local sports team, which means go and pay tickets to see them play, which translates into resources going to that. And there's a lot of language that is really um, uh, it strikes me as as 
you know those. I don't know what they're called. They're these things that the croupiers and the and the blackjack dealers use to move the money around when you go to Vegas. You know, on the you got the chips there, and they use these little. Uh, they look like. Um, uh, little sticks with these sort of flat things at the end. They use them to move around the money. And it's always sort of struck me that the way that language is defined in society uh, has a lot to do with appeals to emotion. But when you lift all of that up, it really just fundamentally comes down to give me stuff, you know, and we'll call it virtue. We'll call it patriotism. We'll call it team loyalty. We'll call it, you know, being a team player, or whatever. We'll call it um, a commitment to excellence. You hear this all the time in the business. A commitment to excellence generally means I want overtime without having to pay you. It's a commitment to excellence. It always means the transfer of stuff, but it's always cloaked in language. And it's always struck me that language is the fundamental predator of humankind. Human beings are not that big guy. I've never been mugged, but man, I get taxed to death, right? That language is the fundamental tool of the predator. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it was Sigmund Freud who noted that the, I mean, well, this is one of his famous quotes where the, the first, um, the first uh, two individuals back in the uh, theoretical caveman situation who decided to use words instead of sticks to settle an argument were um, – that was when civilization started. So yes, I would say that you know nowadays most of us don't go out and just beat someone over the head and say, buy this, do this, or something like that. We have to use uh, language. We have to use more subtle means to convince people, uh, and it's way more effective ultimately. I mean we saw with the Soviet Union that there was this – oh, look at religion in the Soviet Union. I mean if you were at least one of the educated people and you were secretly practicing religion, uh, you could have some pretty major blowback <laughs> from from the authorities. Uh, you might, instead of being a college professor, you'd be working in a coal mine somewhere in Kazakhstan or something during that era. And uh, when the Soviet Union collapsed, what happened? I mean, all of a sudden, um, well, now we see, you know, Russia is probably, if you're going to look at countries in Europe, is probably the most uh, hardcore when it comes to trying to combine Christianity with government uh, because you no longer have that uh, baseball bat over people's heads. And so, yeah, I, I think ultimately, I mean, if you, you look at some of the, you know, if you read anything from Chomsky or someone like that, the, the uh, propaganda that you see in the democracies like the United States, Europe, Canada, is going to be way more advanced because you, in order to control these societies, you you don't have the baseball bat usually. Uh, but in, in um, it, it can be just as effective to know how to word things and so forth. If you look at the mainstream media nowadays, I mean, we have uh, the big issues. You know, don't need to con- concentrate really. It's more of a comedy in regards to Mr. Weiner in New York. Although I think that a lot of <laughs> journalists are having a, they're ha- I, I've seen articles saying he's having what is a it in New York? Really so hard- like in New York, they've got Elliot Spitzer, the guy who was um, thrown out of office for the the hookers and cocaine scandals, mm-hmm. and you have. Um, uh, this wiener guy who's been, you know, uh, <laughs> don't tweet your meat, right? He's been uh, <laughs> sexting his uh, his penis all over uh, God's Green Acre. And uh, these this is the choice that you have in the 21st century democracy. Uh, I mean, uh, hook us and yeah, blow what, what, what or here it, are my it, genitals. 
Yeah, was it what? What was his stage name, uh, or whether he was using Carlos Danger or something like this? You couldn't make this up in a porn movie. I mean, it, you know, that, that, I mean, Biffy McRockhard. I mean, it was just—it's embarrassing. Yeah, but but the thing is that if we, you know, that's going to take our attention right now. It's the royal baby, or the uh, or Anthony Weiner. Um, but ultimately, if we take a look at like the Zimmerman trial, if we take a look at. Um, uh, Edward Snowden. I mean, you can see how you can change the whole context with just the words you use in a headline. Did you know that the um, Associated Press, the Associated Press, instructed all of its members and writers to refer to Snowden as a leaker and not as a whistleblower? Uh, because they need to define that. it. Yeah, they need to define it in that way. It is truly Orwellian because, of course, he has great claim to to not only be called a whistleblower, but to have protection under the law as a whistleblower because he exposed acts which are pretty patently illegal, even under the Patriot Act. He exposed acts which are pretty illegal uh, by the U.S. government. And, of course, the Whistleblower Act in the U.S. government is supposed to protect any government worker who, who shows any illegal actions on the part of the agency that he's working for. So not only is he a whistleblower in the colloquial sense, but even in the legal sense, you know, I'm no lawyer, but he has a great case to make for protection from any retaliations whatsoever because the prison is prison programs illegal. But you can't even call him that. You can't call him a whistleblower uh, because that is taking a stand or uh, giving him some sort of sympathy that, uh, of course, would get you in trouble with the U.S. government. So they just they couldn't even use that word. I mean, it's how powerful language is. Yeah, yeah, and that's because language is ultimately uh, an abstract concept. If we, oh gosh, I don't want to get into Freudian psychology, but just the 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 term "mother" conjures up a certain image in almost all people's minds. It's an archetype, uh, and so, I may not have the and, typical reaction. I just, <laughs> I, may not, uh, sorry, I may not have the typical reaction. But sorry, go on. Yeah, and if you say the word "whistleblower." The the image that comes up is in the movies the heroic person who uh, is working at a I can't remember the name of the movie but you know they're, they're working at a nuclear power plant and they find out things are going wrong and so he or she goes out with the information Good while point. there's people chasing him yeah yeah and that's the image that's the image you get when you use the word whistleblower but if you use the word leaker I get I mean my mental image is this kind of maybe loner, creepy type guy who, oh, I'm going to tell a secret that I have. Uh, well, so and a leak, the movie, I mean, a t- psychologically, a leak is a bad thing. Yeah, I got a leak in my boat. I got a leak in my underpants. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, this is a bad thing all around. So it just has negative connotations yeah. to begin with. Well, Frank Luntz has made a fortune off of, uh, uh, you know, using words and changing the words, like for instance, I think he was the one that did the uh, global warming. He changed it to global climate change, and that creates a whole different message in people's minds. Global climate change. Well, we know we know the seasons change, the weather changes. Uh, we can find fossils of uh, palm trees out in the middle of the desert. You know, we know that things change. But if you say global warming, you get this image of some sort of dystopian, uh, soylent green uh, future. Well, so, you know, they, you know, why they changed that? I mean, they, 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 of course, in the seventies they predicted global cooling, and in the eighties and nineties they predicted mm-hmm. global warming. But there's been no global warming for seventeen years or sixteen years, and so they have to change it now because then you have a thesis that can be disproven. So now it's climate change, and given that climate is uh-huh. a word that is synonymous with change. It's like saying, change, change. Disprove that if you can. Well, no, it's a tautology, so we can't. But uh, anyway, I just want to well, point that out. Here's, 
and here's another another thing you can you can look at that's really interesting. If uh, oh gosh, now I forgot his first name, Zimmerman. Um, oh, George. Oh wow, well, George Zimmerman. Um, if oh, is, isn't that what they named the new baby over in England? Is his name George? George Zimmerman? Uh, no, I don't think they would be naming no, George. <laughs> I, think, I thought he named be, him George. That would be I quite a political statement if they did name him George Zimmerman. <laughs> Windsor or whatever the hell their last name is. <laughs> but I think I, I, I just glanced at some headlines. I thought they na- they were thinking of naming him George, and someone said something about I just the, I know, just George hope third and all. This I just thing. hope that the peasants are celebrating that the prince's penis works because what else could make your day better than knowing that your overlord's <laughs> genitals are actually functioning? I say let off all the fireworks you can, but don't let me interrupt your thought. Sorry, go on. Yeah. Okay, but you know the interesting thing is going back to you know the the, um, the Zimmerman thing is that if Zimmerman had been running for office or doing some – or had won, I don't know, the Nobel Peace Prize or something, the media, the headlines would have been Hispanic man wins. His, you know, George oh, yeah, Zimmerman yeah. Yeah. of Peruvian, of Peruvian um, ancestry. Also, I think – what was it? His, his uh, maternal grandfather or great-grandfather was black. Um, that would have been the headline. Well, in the same way that Obama, who's who's mixed race, is always referred to as black. Yeah, yeah. And how is he black? (laughs) Yeah, and if you look at his Kenyan roots, I mean, some of that's mixed with Arabs. So he's actually less black than Zimmerman is Hispanic. But it it helps in the media to portray him as white – because then you have something to work with. Then you have the white guy kills black guy. Uh, no, story. no, no, no. White guy kills black child. You have to get these 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 memes right, uh, of course, Mike. You, know, oh. you can't refer to you can't refer to Trayvon Martin as as a, a person or an adult. He always has to refer to as a kid or a child. You know, sucking on a bag of skittles, minding his own business, uh, when descended upon by the black angel of death known as George Zimmerman, uh, for no reason whatsoever. This is generally after a mysterious altercation uh, that and so on. Right. So I just want this is the way that it has to be portrayed in order to stoke this uh, racial fires of hatred and further destabilize the uh, the sheep but sorry go ahead yeah but, it, but it's interesting that uh, in in the story the way it's presented through the media i think there was only well it's the alternative press but and some media referred to what was it was it cnn he said that he's a white hispanic or white or hispanic like yeah and some people yeah and and a lot of people um that changes the whole context, and so therefore, and the media knows the context that if they present this as the white black, then it, I don't know, you know, the old phrase sells newspapers, but it also creates a different story than if you presented this as Hispanic versus black, and so then you can do headlines about oh the the racism in America, and at the same time politicians. Uh, Obama and Harry Reid and so forth can make this into a racial issue and try getting more votes for it. And the, the ultimate is how after Zimmerman saved some people in a car recently uh, that you all of a sudden had people who were – I'm not going to name stations, but were questioning 
not only saying this was a conspiracy, but also saying that, well, maybe he did a bad thing. Maybe we should bring him up on charges because uh, what if one of these people had had a back injury and him pulling them out of the car could have broke his their back more or something like that? I mean, just a total hatred, essentially. I mean, it does go down to a hatred to the point that I guess the family that he helped, they're worried about their safety. Oh, can you imagine? Because so, you this- know, some guy comes and pulls you from a truck. And, you know, and, and I don't know what the circumstances, truck overturned or something like that. Some guy pulls you out and you're like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. What? It's you? Oh, shit. Put us back in. Put us back in. <laughs> we can wait for the next guy because, I mean, how terrible is that? Oh, it's wretched. Yeah, but, but you, don't see, you don't see the media coming out and saying something about, okay, everyone needs to sit back and relax and try to work together. I mean it would be great if, if you did have Harry Reid and Obama come out and say this should give us uh, time to pause and reflect over race and, and crime and how we get along with each other. And, and you know, they could word it any way, but instead they make it they, – they try to keep that – they could try to keep that racial issue involved. And to me, I mean, this is not just accidental. They, they, when, when, when someone – well, Harry Reid, we can argue about just how smart he is. But when we have uh, Obama, you know that they get together. They have their little – it's not really a focus group, but they get together and try to figure out, okay, how do we play on this? How do we present this to the public? How do we – deal with it. And you know, this goes back to what you said about language. I mean, if if instead of trying to really convey true meaning, we're trying to manipulate people, it works much better than the baseball bat or the spear from the knights or or something like this. It it is something that it will sell an idea. And an idea is way more powerful than a weapon. Yeah, and I mean there is a a genuine tragedy uh, in the heart of um, most blacks within Western cultures, particularly in America, which is, you know, they're doing not that great relative to the general population. And, uh, you know, there's there's a whole complex series of reasons why uh, some of them have to do with, uh, I'm sure there's racism out there, but also a lot of it has to do with bad choices within these communities. You know, I mean, if you, Bill O'Reilly pointed this out recently where he said that, of course, you know, black youths commit 10 times as many violent crimes as whites and Hispanic youths combined. But also, you know, they have children out of wedlock. They, uh, you know, they have this whole thug culture. They don't uh, tend generally have a problem getting and keeping jobs and so on as a result of the war on drugs and the profits to be made from that kind of stuff. And the welfare state tends to hit those on the underclass even harder than the middle class and so on. Lots of reasons. And it's a very big, complex question. And it's not solved with slogans. It's not solved with chanting and, and waving. You have a complex set of uh, interactions, some of which are external to a community and some of which are damn well internal to a community, which the black community, to the some elements within the black community, to their credit, have realized. You know, stop having children out of wedlock. Wait till you're 21 to get married and have kids. Complete high school. Uh, get and keep a job for at least a year. And if you do all of that, you have very great chances of ending up in the middle class. If you don't do those things, you're going to stay poor. And, uh, of course, you can't talk about self-responsibility within the black community without being talked, uh, being called a racist unless you are, in fact, black, in which case it would be a wonderful opportunity for President Obama to do those kinds of things. You know, as Bill O'Reilly was saying, you know, have, have him run an ad that says targeted at, at uh, black teenager women saying don't have children when you're a teenager, you know, do these things and so on. That would be actually helpful. But instead, you know, he talks about how frightened people are when he gets in an elevator, which um, – 
I don't know. Anyway, I just wanted, it, it is a language-based system that we live in still, and language has such powerful possibilities for clarification or obscuration. There's a great Eastern philosopher who said, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper names and not live in the matrix of language, but that's hard for people. Well, it's even when you just use the term uh, having a child out of wedlock uh, versus a female-headed household. I mean, I mean, even if you use, if you can't use the word illegitimate hardly at all anymore in the in and you can't use bastard at all. Has, no, 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 and because it creates a negative uh, connotation, and so then you get, especially when it comes to uh, these upper class, uh, generally, generally white women. Who you see some you know movie star who's saying that well I'm going to have a child uh, they had a donor or something like that and of course this person also has enough money that they can hire a nanny or someone to take care of their kids um, and you know it, but it creates this image that well we can't we can't lump everyone saying you know an illegitimate child or a child born out of wedlock we have to use the you know that nicer term that will fit in more with a feminist uh, value you know female headed household you know you get this image of a uh, strong dynamic woman who's trying to keep her family together yeah. versus oops uh, i got pregnant <laughs> you know type well or type or you know or i'm you know i selfishly want uh, a child without having a husband or a man around. I mean, this is incredibly, I mean, the, the statistics, this is why you don't see this argument so much anymore. You probably may remember that Murphy Brown. It's so nice talking to somebody who's not 20, uh, but you probably remember that Murphy Brown debacle from, I don't know, 20 years ago where Dan Quayle said, you know, about the show Murphy Brown, it was promoting single motherhood, which is bad for kids. And he got lambasted. And even uh, Candace Bergen, who lambasted him at the time, you know, a few years ago said, yeah, he was kind of right. I mean, the statistics are incontrovertible by now. It's about as certain as anything you can be in the social sciences, how absolutely terrible and destructive uh, single motherhood is at every wage scale. It doesn't matter if you've got nannies or not. I mean, if nannies could be even worse because then they've got a whole cycle of caregivers who come and go usually. But um, yeah. uh, it is terrible for children, particularly boys, to be raised without a mom and dad. It's one of the great relearnings that Murray Rothbard used to talk about. He used to talk about how he was talking about in the 60s, you know, everybody kind of lived in communes and stopped washing. You know, and then they all got these horrible lice and, you know, scabies. And it's like, yes, soap is important. Why did we forget that? Let's reinvent things for sure. Let's question things about society. But let's not go, let's not say everything in the past was bad. And this idea that you need a kind of two parent household to effectively raise children was well known throughout antiquity, was the fundamental basis of, of marriage, you know. Uh, that the the um, uh, the woman gives up uh, uh, some freedoms, the man gives up some freedoms, but uh, in return for the woman, the, the freedoms that the woman gives up, the man has at least a reasonable certainty that the children he's raising are his own, uh, and that's what tames men and all this, you know, the wild testosterone and the you know the fact that we have a very flat bell curve of ability, particularly white males. You know, we have more geniuses and more idiots than any other random grab bag of genes on the planet. Mm -hmm. Like we threw out everything to do with the past and just figured we could start in some sort of communist fantasy land uh, with a clean slate and well, let's just redesign human beings and maybe we don't need moms and dads despite the fact that all animals have them and evolution has dictated that for hundreds of thousands or millions of years let's just say we don't need this stuff and then you know the inevitable catastrophes uh, strike and it's really hard because then you have a huge voting constituent of people who've made terrible mistakes often through no fault of their own who don't want to be told about those terrible mistakes and so you end up with the media propping up all of these images of the strong noble brave single mother and all that kind of stuff and sure some of them are but statistically, it's about the worst thing that can happen to a kid, particularly a boy. 
Well, I mean, and on top of that, I just want to throw this out too that um, there's there's been a huge amount of well, I'm, I'm sure in Canada too, but in, in the United States, a big issue about gay marriage. And I think the, one of the the interesting things is I'm wondering if that's going to change the way family courts are, as particularly in the United States. Once you start seeing it's you know not just a okay guy girl go in and there's still a there's still a prejudice towards the male if he wants custody of his child or children, and I'm wondering uh, how that's going to play out in the future. think you mean prejudice against the male? Sorry, you said prejudice towards the male. I think yeah. against the male. I just want to be yeah, really against. clear that yeah, I think most people would understand that. It would be clear. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. And I'm just wondering if we're going to see a change in custody laws once we start seeing all of a sudden two women going into court. More often, fighting for custody of of, of their children, but um, you know, two lesbian women and so forth. This could actually start. You know, I, I, I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking. You know, if you go back, this sounds crazy, but if you go back to the 1970s, and you think about the fact that it was um, some, somewhat off topic, but it was uh, feminists just hated pornography. They were out protesting it and and so forth, and then. With the VHS when it came out, and then later DVD, um, all of a sudden you had a split in the feminist community because suddenly it wasn't just the dirty, seedy side of town where the guys with trench coats went into and stuff. It suddenly turned into, oh, you mean you can have feminist erotica? They call it erotica. Right, right. If, if, you know, if, if, if that's, that's, an, that's another thing. If, it, uh, generally, I've joked with women about this. It's like. Um, if you if you have something that men want to watch, it's pornography. If women like to watch it, it's erotica. You know, and it's <laughs> the same thing. I but think we've unearthed the first double the standard in feminism. But anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah, and but but the thing is that maybe since a lot of feminists, you know, actually now are saying, well, it's not so bad as long as there's no exploitation involved. Well, you may see a situation where feminists in the future when a woman's fighting for custody of the child against her wife, <laughs> you might suddenly start seeing a little bit of political action being taken in various legislatures saying that, well, maybe we need to rewrite this maybe more like more of the Scandinavian model where there's a – if no one is – uh, really at fault. It's just people just kind of lose interest in each other. Then uh, we form some sort of joint custody situation, which in America, no, that it, it, that that is like, you know, the lawyers like, no, no, you don't want that. We need to have a fight and stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, th these uh, these breakdowns in the social norms and so forth that you bring up. I mean, yeah, I, they, these have been sold to people too. You know, we we change the language a little bit to say, well, this is a good thing versus a bad thing. You know, uh, uh, I think, for instance, we look at. I mean, you know, I'm not getting down on people or anything, but it's it's the um, we use the what's the new word now that came out a few years ago? Blended families, <laughs> so oh, yeah, yeah, the Brady yeah. Bunch sort of thing, and it's all an attempt to be like, okay, well, let's change and make a new context around something. And most people just follow the context, which is unfortunate. And which is interesting is if we go back, you know, to psychopathy, and assume that most people—well, not most, but a significantly higher number—are attracted to politics, are attracted to um, marketing and corporate and the military and stuff. I would assume, yeah. 
in the leadership positions, I, I would say they're 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 the ones that are going to be shooting for the uh, promotions really quick. You don't want to be the guy. It's like, well, we need to go take that hill, and you're like, oh, wait a minute, forty percent of us aren't going to come back. You know, they don't they don't want that. You know, they may have a certain they want the glory, but they don't want to take the risk. So, um, yeah, the 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 danger I think you have is a lot of people. And I don't know if it's any different now than it used to be, but a lot of people don't think. And if they're not thinking, then they're just going to go with the flow of whatever is the, uh, you know, in politics, the favorite flavor of the day or, or what the society says is the right thing to do. And of course, they don't, they don't look back at someone like Edward Bernays, who said that almost all of what most people do is dictated by a small number of people who know how to market it. Oh, yeah. No, people, uh, it's an old quote says uh, most people imagine they're thinking when they're, all they're doing is rearranging their prejudices, <laughs> you know, usually according to yeah. uh, some some piece of language that is uh, that is put in place that is supposed to make things different. Yeah. Blended families, um, um, extremely risky for children. Right. I mean, um, for a single mom in particular, if she brings a non biologically related man into her household, uh, the children are up to 30 times more likely to be abused in a variety of methods uh, uh, because there's no biological tie. There's no history, uh, of course, particularly when the children uh, and the girls reach teenage uh, years. I mean, there's just not that same biological inhibition that comes growing up with your own children. It's incredibly risky. Uh, but you can, you can, you know, most people won't even want to hear these facts. There are so many facts that are like uh, third rails of, of conversations. Like, don't bring up these facts. This goes against uh, all the value-neutral language that I've been injected with uh, that has mm-hmm. rendered me insensate to, to statistical dangers. And uh, I think that is, um, you know, that is really tragic. You know, like people are afraid of terrorism. And, uh, you know, the, the real risks that are occurring in, in the world are... Um, you know, the risks of national debts, the risks of war, uh, the risks of child abuse, the, the risks of divorce for men. A lot of men sail into marriage uh, without ever really thinking about, you know, the 40 or 50 percent chance it's not going to work out. It could have them dragged ass backwards like Alec Baldwin through the justice system, as it's called. Uh, he wrote a book about it, said it's basically it's about the same as being pulled behind people in a truck, you know, did, dragged by a chain. It, you know, the ride ends when they say it will, not when you say it will. And uh, it's mm-hmm. an incredibly risky thing to do. And men are, a lot of men are just sailing into this uh, without really thinking about the, the dangers and the risks of what they're doing. So we're, we're taught to stare at these incredibly uh, tiny risks that are very dramatic. And yet the actual risks in our life uh, are almost completely obscured and, and actually become things that you almost can't talk about. It's so volatile. Well, if you deal with the whole terrorism thing, um, I, I was just there was just some headlines that one day. It was there was a movie star who uh, was it? He he uh, he died of it. Later came out that he died of erotic asphyxiation, and uh, you know I was like, whoa! I heard about that once. I think on an X Files or something. What is that? Oh, this about? is uh, like Sorry, Michael look- Hutchins, the singer from NXS. He died from that too. I think it's the idea that if you strangle yeah. yourself while you're achieving oxygen—sorry, while you're achieving orgasm—the oxygen deprivation makes your orgasm more intense. Yeah, and so what I did was I I, I thought, okay, I got to look this up. So I looked it up, and it listed how many people in just in America, just how many people die per year of this. And I was like, oh wow, that's more than I thought. You know, it was. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was in the, the hundreds, maybe like a thousand or whatever, right. died of that per year. 
and then I thought – this is like about 10 years after 9-11. So I was thinking, OK, 3,000 people died on 9-11, and it was something like twice as many people have died of erotic asphyxiation during right. the same time in the United States. So you have double the chance of knowing someone personally who died from that than from terrorism. And yet no one even talks about that kind of issue. Then we go into drunk drivers. You know, your risk of dying from a drunk driver is you know, is there's probably more people that die from drunk driving in gosh, just a couple months in the United States than die throughout all or even maybe a month. I don't know the exact I think figures, traffic but. accidents in the US are um, traffic fatalities are about thirty five thousand a year, which is uh, you yeah, know, it's half like nine eleven every five weeks. Uh, but uh, and I don't know how many yeah. of those are, are are related to to drunk driving or whatever. But it's I think much more about danger when I'm pulling out of my driveway than I do when I'm getting on a plane. Oh, well, oh, absolutely. And I'm not so worried about the terrorism. More worried about is the pilot going to you know, do a good job, or if there's some bolt or something that's that's um, missing. No, you know, now we're now getting everyone scared that's listening to this is flying this, you know, tomorrow. But the thing is that. Again, it's what our perception is. If we um, if we throw an issue out and keep it in the public eye, then people will think differently about it over time. Especially, oh, you brought up the thing. I, I got to go back there. You brought up the thing about risk taking and marriage. And we were talking. I mean, I never even thought about this. You know, we talked a few minutes ago about. Will psychopathy, if there's any genetic link, will it decrease in the future or increase? Well, if psychopaths are more likely to take the risk, <laughs> then yeah, yeah. they're going to get married at a higher at a higher percentage than than um, than people who have gone through. You know, their parents divorced, and you know, I, I've read that. What do you call it? The millennial children. Mm. These are kids born during the the from around the 1990s. So many of them have gone through divorce that males are really, really scared of committing, even yeah. in relationships. Yeah. And so you have fewer men who are committing at the same time, the economy being what it is. Then women see that men don't commit, and then pretty soon everyone's just kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. And then, you know, trying to, and of course, you know, okay, well, you know, I'm 35, I'm female, I don't have any kids, I better go to the sperm bank and, and have a kid because there's no guys out there. And, and this is, I think this will become a norm in the, in the, uh, you can see this in Japan. In I mean, in Japan, I mean, there's a significant portion of the young men who are just not at all interested in getting married, settling down. They're called uh, grass eaters or, or, or herbivores because they basically have not considered to be into the red meat of, of sex and reproduction. <laughs> uh, there's a whole movement in, in the West called Men Going Their Own Way or MGTOW, which is uh, basically men saying, look, I, I'm not interested. It's too risky legally and emotionally uh, to, to try and settle down with a Western woman or a woman at all. And, of course, in Japan, it's easy to see how this came about. I mean, this death by overwork, this karoshi, I mean, all of this kind of stuff that occurred, uh, which these guys basically grew up without dads because their dads are working 80 hours a week and then going out to get drunk with the boss at the karaoke bar and then, you know, having a heart attack on the subway on the way home at 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, what sane human being would want anything to do with that? And, uh, you know, with the advent of pornography, you can just masturbate and you don't have to worry about that urge. You know, that sort of Catholic restriction, the hairy palm, don't do it stuff has kind of fallen by the wayside. 
And so it's, you know, for men, it's a whole lot less attractive to, uh, to, to get involved in relationships, considering the risk and the, the, the disastrous that a lot of particularly men saw their, um, their fathers go through uh, with, with divorces or overwork or just that general enslaved to the family that you never see kind of thing. Yeah, it's really not that appealing. And I think society is going to have to adjust with that at some point because at the lower edges of society, you know, there's lots of guys who are floating around uh, happy to impregnate uh, the um, what they call in the ghettos, these uh, apartment buildings full of uh, rent subsidized uh, welfare Projects. women. Yeah, they, they call them they call them girlfriend farms. You know, because they basically just go, these guys would go and have sex. I don't think it's race related. Just go have sex and move on. If the, if the woman has a baby, well, the welfare state will take care of it. And, you know, uh, Medicare will take care of it. And the public schools are subsidized and free for the families and so on. And, and so at the lower echelons, I mean, they're breeding like it takes a pretty cold ass guy to have that many kids and not be interested in taking care of them. So I think this is another way in which it's breeding. And in the U.S., you know, I think trying to control for as many variables as possible over the last 15 years, sociopathy has doubled doubles among the young and uh yeah it really is kind of the end of the world scenario when the smarter people and the more gentle people are looking at the risks and saying no way and the heedless and careless are like yeah i'm i'm there well the, the interesting thing about that too is yeah i think you've had an increase in sociopathy you know we don't don't need to well if you want to we can get into the the difference between psychopathy and sociopathy it's, it's really do you want to just touch definition. on that just for you know might as well do it at the end <laughs> Well, this is this is. I just use this analogy. There's a, I think there's a documentary called "I Am Fishhead," and 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 I like what one psychologist said. It, it if you put a psychopath and a sociopath in the room and you're interviewing them, um, and you say this pen that's sitting here on the table is the most important thing. How do you get it from me? And he says how the, the difference is like the sociopath will take it. The psychopath will manipulate you into hmm. taking it. And using that analogy that we've been talking about a little bit here, it's like if you leave your 17-year-old daughter in the care of a psychopath or a sociopath uh, while you're on some sort of business um, you know, travel or something like this, um, the, the difference between a psychopath and a sociopath is the, psychopath, the sociopath will rape your daughter. If he wants to, the soci- the psychopath will seduce her. Right, right. So the the, the same thing happens. It's just the difference that it, it occurs, and that's kind of the that's one of the best ways I think of of seeing the difference between the two. But the 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 the, the family the family situations. Uh, if you if the media presents, I I can't remember how. There was a guy that did a book recently that – he may have been one of the ones that was involved with the bell curve. I don't know, but but he was comparing – and he only he didn't, he didn't want to be accused racist, so he just looked at uh, from 1963 on. Because before 1963, everyone had kind of a shared set of values. You know, If you were a hardcore leftist liberal, you still had kids. You still got married. If you were a hardcore right-wing fundamentalist Christian – you did the same thing. It was just everyone kind of did the same thing until about 1963. So he wanted to avoid the racial component. So he just said, let's take a look at a typical middle – I mean an upper middle class white community and their standards and a and a lower class uh, – he used the term working class white community. And he said that a divergence started taking place in 1963. You know, we had the sexual revolution, stuff like this. He said that most of the time, the upper class family, they played around with it in the 70s. 
But then they realized, okay, you know, if I want a good college education, if I want to do all these wonderful things, I can't be getting girls pregnant all over the place. You know, they're going to be chasing me in family court. Sorry, do you mean you mean the kids? I want to make sure. So you said they they started playing around with it in the seventies, but who's they? Is it the is it the middle class family, the 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 adults or the kids? Or I just want to make sure I'm clear. Even well, every well to a certain degree, just about everyone. But the younger people in the seventies, a lot of the upper middle class youth, you know, if you think about the. The stereotype of the sorority fraternity got you know people and stuff like this. So this they isn't like the adults the having their like the key parties where the adults would sort of get together and wife swap, and that was sort of a fad that occurred in the seventies that sort of faded away. You're talking more about the young people and uh, that's sort of starting out their lives kind of thing, their adult lives. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the older people, even at their key parties, you talk about uh, at least my understanding of swinging back in those days was that it was m- the typical swinger was like forty-ish. You know, they're pretty much done with their kids and they were, okay, right you now. know, now they were they were looking for some sort of extra excitement. So, you know, kids are left with the babysitter. They go out and, you know, switch right, right. partners. But the the teenagers and the young adults of the 70s, they what happened was, you know, they 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 experimented with all this new sexual freedom. But for the most part, at least if they experimented and nowadays it's even more so if they experiment they will use some sort of contraceptions and, and, and so forth Not, because they don't. You know, if you're going to go to college, you don't – You know, in your senior year of high school and you're planning on going to college, you don't want to get your girlfriend pregnant. Or if you're a girl, you don't want to get pregnant. Um, the lower classes, on the other hand, the opportunity cost for these kinds of things is much less. Sure. So if your goal is to go work at Walmart and suddenly you wind up pregnant, it's like – Oh, okay. Well, you know, I'll get my mom to watch the kids, and I'll still go watch. You know, and, you know, and, or, and or to be to be so, to be fair, sorry to be interrupt, but to be fair, they can say, well, if I end up on welfare, that's not hugely. It's not a huge step down from working at Walmart. Whereas if you want to become a professor and you end up on welfare, uh, or a CEO, or a lawyer, or a doctor, and then you end up on welfare, that's a huge step down, even from where you started. Exactly. But for the poor, and this Charles Murray talked about this, of course, in Losing Ground. For the poor, it's like, okay, well, if I end up on welfare. You know, I'm not hugely materially worse off than if I had a minimum wage job, but I don't have to work. So, because minimum wage jobs generally suck, which is why people try to graduate from them if they can. Uh, so, I just wanted to point that out. So, the opportunity cost in many ways for the poor people having a lot of kids uh, is really not uh, not nearly as great for anyone with uh, ability or drive. But at the same time, the media um, will concentrate on selling. These ideas of what it's what it is to be successful, and so forth, to the lower classes, uh, and they'll sell that. Like, well, you look at a music video, you know, a typical uh, music video that will depict, you know, a lot of hardly dressed girls dancing around, guys dra- driving a big car with big gold necklaces around his neck, and so forth. There's a reason why that is done. Uh, it stems back to some studies – well, in the 1950s, they studied people that lived in lower-class neighborhoods versus upper-class. Upper-class people parked their cars in their garage. Lower-class parked their cars out on the street, and there mm. was a reason because if you're lower-class and you can't afford a nice home, you could still put all of your discretionary income into a really nice car. And then and everyone so can see it because it's on the street. Right, right. OK, OK. Exactly, and this is why our media today – if you look at the media that's aimed at the lower classes, whether it's these in, you know, insane 
so-called reality shows <laughs> or 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 TV programming that like I said the music videos where their audience is considered well probably not you know I'll say they're probably not they're probably not getting a lot of people at Harvard and Stanford that are saying oh we need to watch the new episode of you know yeah, and, yeah. and so forth it's it's not aimed at them it's aimed at a group of people they know are highly susceptible to consumerism and status and status symbols and then you sell them things that are everything from you know you might be poor but you can afford a, a jacket that costs two thousand dollars you know or a pair of sneakers which people have died for people shooting people in some communities to steal shoes because they're like the new whatever brand that you know is like eighteen hundred dollar shoes uh, but these are status symbols, and therefore, you know, the people that do these shows, these people live in nice communities. Their kids go to college. They don't spend all day long watching this stuff. You know, the the videos, the reality shows. What I would argue, the the children's programming. If you watch any children's programming, you see how materialistic it's oriented, and how you know, you don't go to school to learn. You go to school to be seen. Hmm. Is the message well? You know, you know how destructive that is, but at the same time, you present it because it makes money. I would argue that is, in a way, a, a reflection of a psychopathic society that you you just don't care as long as well. You know, my kids are going to go to a nice college because I'm making money selling this particular brand of clothing because we're going to insert it into all of these programs that we know that 12 and 13 year old girls watch all day. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, it's devoid of any kind of moral principle. Are, are what we doing it right? I, I would argue, you know, they don't think that. You know, do you ever show kids sitting down in children's programming, looking at a book and studying? No. Do you, what do you do? You show you show the teachers and the parents, particularly the fathers, as being idiots, stupid, nerdy, and you know, this sells. And but unfortunately, not only does it sell products, it also sells ideas. In which, especially the lower class, are thinking, "Oh, why do I have to listen to this teacher? Oh, if they do have a father, why do I have to listen to my father? He's just some jerk that, for some reason, my mom puts up with, you know, and, <laughs> and that sort of thing." And I think that's actually destructive. Oh, it is, and it very much is um, feeding the present at the expense of the future, uh, because, of course, when these people get older, they're going to have to live in a world that is populated by. The people that they, the children that they fed all this horrible propaganda to. This is a problem, as of course, as old as philosophy, that youth tends to be quite foolish, but is very pretty, right? Whereas age tends to be quite wise, but is not so pretty. So the the most the prettiest exteriors hide the most foolish souls, and the ugliest exteriors can hide the most beautiful souls. But of course, we only have two eyes. The third eye of the mind doesn't usually work for people where you can perceive virtue, and it is, of course, a terrifyingly materialistic culture. I think that has a lot to do with the fact that we've thrown kids into daycare. Uh, we have, uh, as a species in our history, the traditional ratio has been four adults for every child, right? Because extended family and tribalism and so on. And so children um, grew with a lot of top-down uh, influence. Uh, now, you know, put kids in daycare and there are 10 kids to a teacher, 20 kids to a teacher in schools, 25 or 30 kids or more. To a teacher, and so in the lack, with the lack of adult instruction, they gravitate towards peer instruction, 
And that always tends to gravitate towards the lowest common denominator. It tends to be the sociopath or the psychopathic kid uh, who is the most intimidating, who is the most shallow, who is the most brutal, who is the most willing to do damage to other children, either verbally or physically. And thus, you end up with a very primitive, uh, ugly set of childish personalities uh, hurting everyone around. And uh, it's a lot easier in that environment uh, to buy a set of sneakers than it is to develop virtue and thus risk alienating yourself from a pretty primitive and brutal tribe. Uh, so abandoning children even, to be raised by each other is a complete disaster, and I hope that we learn that sooner rather than later. Well, even in societies where – and you know, it, the 1950s model of dad going out and working and mom staying home, um, that did not exist, for instance, during the pioneer days. I no. mean in the pioneer days, um, dad might go out and go hunting or whatever for meat, and the woman's out there you know. Killing the crops. I mean, often, very often, she's oh, yeah. the one out there plowing the fields, and she might be six months pregnant doing it. But the interesting thing of that era was, like you said, the, there was someone to take care of the kids, and usually that was uh, either one set or both sets of parents, because uh, you'd have one of the parents probably living with you, whether it's the mother's oh, close, parents yeah. or the father's parents. Yeah. So you always had a situation where you had. Um, you had someone who was, you know, stereotypical sixty-year-old, seventy-year-old, eighty-year-old person sitting on the porch, and probably pretty strict with the kids because, you know, they might be a little bit more frail. So therefore, the kids aren't going to get away with a lot. You know, they're going to go after them. But also teaching the values. And they are, are sorry, they are a they are a heavily invested blood relative, not someone in a daycare exactly. making minimum wage who's going to cycle in and out of that job every three months, not some teacher who's there because she wants summers off and be uh, the ability to work six hours a day. I mean, it's not to condemn all teachers, but there's no substitute for heavily invested blood relatives. I mean, the fact that we care yeah. about our progeny despite their endless inconvenience, and I say this as the father of one child completely respecting that you have eight kids, so I probably don't even know half of what I'm talking about or one-eighth. But there's no substitute for a heavily invested blood relative. There's a reason why uh, we are care more about our own genes than other people's genes. And I don't think there's a huge amount of substitute. Just farming kids off to be raised by strangers for the most part is not going to help them develop meaningful and, and deep relationships. No, and I mean the irony is you know, there, there's been a lot written on why is it that humans have menopause? And there's, there's oh, yeah. one other species that has menopause, and that's pilot whales. And pilot whales and humans are the only species that, rep, that recognize grandchildren and also the species in which the grandparents, like you said, they're invested. They, they will work to raise the children as well. So the idea is the woman you know, reaches 45, 50, 55. She's no longer able to have kids. Therefore, she now – will help with raising her own her, her grandkids and in today's society we don't i mean the, we don't have the grandparents nearby anymore i mean if you're in northern europe you just stick grandma and grandpa either in an apartment or in a rest home and forget about them if you're in the united states grandma and grandpa are getting in the camper and going down to Arizona during the winter and uh, doing their own thing because that's what's promoted, you know, live for yourself, you know, go move to a condo in Miami or something like this and and hardly ever see the kids. Maybe with Skype you can talk to them during Christmas or something. Yeah. But the the thing is that then again we open it up more to what the society is going to promote versus 
the kids getting their culture and their and their learning through you know those who've lived through it the you know i mean my my father he's like 90 he's if if i want to know something about the depression he can tell me what it was like living during the depression i can show my kids oh here here's a documentary about the depression that's not nearly as as uh emotionally uh invested as knowing that your grandfather had to go out and in order to feed the chickens when they were little kids, five and six and seven and eight years old, they had to go out and gather grasshoppers because mm-hmm. they couldn't afford feed and, and stuff like this. So it gives a certain level of what I would say respect for history. Yeah. And then if you have a situation, like you said, you know, you have a daycare where, you know, and I, I would argue that to a certain degree, daycare is something that is used. Well, I would say, for instance, the, uh, the Nordic model of daycare is also associated with acculturating or socializing children to be one homogenous group. And much like public education was set up in the United States to take all these immigrant kids from Catholic and Protestant and Jewish backgrounds with different languages, stick them into one classroom and make them all into nice Anglo-Saxon, at least Protestant ethic uh, individuals. And I think daycare to a certain degree, it's, it doesn't have that political aspect in the United States and I don't know about Canada, uh, you know, but especially the United States yet. But I think ultimately it could where it would be used as a socialization technique as it is, like I said, in, in um, the Nordic model or how it used to be in the Soviet Union. Well, I mean, it, it clearly communicates to children that their priorities are not important. I mean, there's just I worked in a daycare and I mean, there's just there's no question. I mean, kids experience everything in terms of how valuable am I to my parents? That's their fundamental survival drive. Am I valuable to my parents? If they miss that, they might get abandoned on an ice floor or something. And and fundamentally, when you put your kids in daycare, what you're telling them is uh, I got better things to do than spend time with you. Now, you could say, well, you know, but I have to go to work and we've got to have food on the table and so on. That's fine. Kids will understand that when they get older. But when they're younger. All they get is, well, mom or dad or both, they have more important things to do than spend time with us, so they're going to stick me with strangers. I mean, that's so humiliating for children. You know, I mean, it's, it's like getting married to someone and then saying, well, I'm going to spend most of the week living with someone else uh, who I like better. I mean, how's a wife going to feel about that? Not good, right? I mean, it is fundamentally humiliating. And that humiliation plays itself out in gang-related activities. It plays itself out in, in drugs to mask the pain of that humiliation. It plays itself out in bullying, in hierarchy, in, in nerdish outcasting. It, 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 the humiliation of my parents don't want to spend time with me, and that's clear based upon their behavior. Children are relentlessly empirical. They don't care about your stories. They only care about what you do. Uh, it's, it's just tragic, mm-hmm. and this humiliation is going to bounce back harsh on, on society. Well, especially when we consider the fact that a lot of parents, even when they're with their kids, they just put the kids in front of television. Yeah, so or video games or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I what's mean, it, 15, and, hours, 15 and, hours a week kids spend in front of media, 20 hours a week. It's like a part-time job, and they're already not dealing – they're already not interacting with their parents all day. Uh, and half the weekend when they got chore, like everyone's got errands and stuff to do, the amount of quality conversation time uh, that kids have with their uh, uh, adults uh, can be measured, you know, in ten to twenty minutes a week. I mean, it's astounding how terrible that is. Well, and to get and to get back on, you know, again, the 
the relation with psychopathy. You said that the um, sociopathy psychopathy seems to increase, has increased uh, lately. And it's not, I don't think, the genetic ones, you know, people that actually have this predisposition, but it's more like what you call secondary psychopaths. When kids start learning what seems to work in society, they no longer have grandma and grandpa, for instance. I'll just use the extended family model from the 19th century. They don't have grandma and grandpa uh, giving stories and tell, saying that we don't do this because it's wrong. You know, they don't. They don't have that in culturation. Instead, they watch television where often the hero, whether it's a children's show or something more brutal or you know more adult, um, the person who's the hero gets what they want through being more manipulative, uh, breaking social barriers and breaking the law and doing these other things in order to achieve their goals. And so a lot of these kids are um, – Excuse me, cat here. <laughs> I mean that. Um, yeah, put a cat. Put a cat in the video. That oh, look at that. Our views just went up six hundred thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just put something about cats in a video, and you're going to wind up with you know millions of people. But that gives you an idea. People want that kind of thing. They're they're you know. But the but the thing is that uh, with. Today, I think the the lessons, you know, instead of sitting around the campfire, if you're going to go back a thousand years, you know, and telling the sagas of your people, uh, instead of grandma and grandpa teaching you, instead of mother in the 50s teaching you, it's these children's networks. It's the big corporate media, which is only controlled by six companies ultimately in the Western world. Um, they're going to give you an image of what life is like, which, which doesn't exist. I mean, this this image does not exist, but that's the image that you create. It's like the soap operas. You know, no one ever, you know, no one ever works in the soap opera. They just dress up like they work, and then, they like I said, the kids go to school. <laughs> yeah, and their illegitimate child, you know, is already a teenager after two years <laughs> after they got pregnant in the first place. I remember my mom watching those soap operas. That was like, hey, that kid, she was. Now the kid's dating the other. You know, anyway, the the thing is though that again, it's it's everything turns into what does the appear what's the appearance. So if I go to school dressed in all the designer clothes, I if, if you're in America, you're 16, you're driving a nice car, and all these other things, all that count. Learning something in the classroom is just a distraction from the important stuff, and that's to be seen. By other people, so you get a situation where kids smart off more, and then how does the school system react to that? They become more authoritarian. My, I have a son that attended a school in uh, Provo, Utah, and the rules there were—I mean, it was a working-class uh, school, high school. The the rules there were atrocious. On you know, you got detention if you were tardy to class no matter how much time but a couple times uh the way you had to validate whether you truly were sick went beyond the parents just saying you know johnny was sick you know yesterday you know he couldn't come to school it's almost like he had to provide a signed affidavit from a doctor without johnny being punished for missing school so so the classroom you know it becomes more authoritarian the kids get used to it pretty soon you have police you know, monitoring things and checking the lockers, and this gets the kids used to this idea because you know, again, they're they don't have this inner 
uh, ethic built into them. So then everything has to be external. You know, you've got to do right because if you don't, we're going to come down on you for not doing right. And the kids don't understand that. It's just like I remember when I taught in public school in the United States, and and you would um, and you'd have a substitute that was really mean. And the kids would be like, oh, sh- sh-, you know, the, the, you know, you'd have a kind of a class that had some unruly students, and they're like, don't get that substitute anymore. She was really mean. She did this and this and this. And I'm just writing down, you know, note, get that teacher, <laughs> get her to come <laughs> this, in this, every yeah. single time. You didn't want the teacher coming in that was all nice and like, oh, class, you know, let's talk about flowers, and then you know they're eaten alive by the students. Um, and that's sad because in some of these uh, alternative educational um, settings for the kids, they're like 16 and under. The if if they have this desire and it's been instilled by their parents to learn, you don't really have to have all those rules. You don't have to say, "Well, here's the 100 rules you have to follow," because they just do it. Right. And and I think that. Most people, when they have this idea of let's just be free and do whatever, even if it means infringing on other people's rights, they don't understand that the powers that be, whether it's government, whether it's schools, whatever, are going to become way more authoritarian in order to keep things under control. Well, that's a great old quote. I I think it was Montesquieu who said that uh, if you forget the few basic rules, you end up with 10,000 petty rules. Uh, like you try and oh, play catch up one. all the time. I'll, I'll send you the quote. I, it's not exactly that, but it's something like that. And listen, just before our audience completely runs out of oxygen, um, I think we should end <laughs> here. Uh, if the fantastically enjoyable chat, I'm sure we could chat what is all night for me and all morning for you. But uh, make sure that my listeners can get a hold of your existing work and your upcoming novel. Where can they find you on the interwebs? Okay. Well, first of all, the best thing if if you just look up the fan site at Freedom from Conscience on Facebook, then um, you can find information there. You can look up Freedom from Conscience uh, on Amazon, and you'll it'll come up with both. It's Freedom from Conscience, Melanie's Journey is the first book. Freedom from Conscience, Melanie's um, Awakening is the second book, and yeah, the, if you know, you just you try it. I mean, I, I think that sometimes it, it gives people a better perspective if something's written from a fictional standpoint mm-hmm. because you can relate to the character. Absolutely. You can, you can be thinking, how is she thinking? Why, why does she commit this crime, justify it, and then just go on with her own, her own life and not worry about the consequences? Like, you know, how can she not have this consuming her and just go on like this? And it, it's, I think you'll find it for a psychological thriller. It's not just about violence. It is about psychology. It's about philosophy. It's about government. It's about – well, the second book goes into family, which we've talked about a lot. You know, How is our goals towards family very vital and how does this affect society? And, and so I, I try to play a lot with the union archetypes. You know, Everything has a symbolic meaning. In it, it's not just thrown out like you know. Here, here's a car chase. There's no car chases in in these <laughs> novels. It's it's not a car chase. It is um, if something's done, if an event takes place, there is a symbolic meaning behind it. And so, you know, I mean, I may be the author, but I'd say I think people would enjoy it a lot. Both books. Well, I will be sure to. One. 
I'll be sure to put the links uh, in the low bar to the video and also in the notes of the podcast. Uh, Mike, I'm very glad that you got back in touch. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can do it again. And thank you so much for your time. I hope that this didn't get you up too god-awfully early, or I hope that you can get a little bit of sleep before your day begins. Oh, thank you very much. And thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Take care.